Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Marcelo Gleiser will join us to discuss a tear at the edge of creation. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, the progress of modern science has been a constant drive to understand the physical laws governing the universe. A major goal is the search for a theory of everything that would unite all the physical laws. It is a search that has been frustratingly non-productive. Is such a unification possible? Is the universe elegant or gloriously messy? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Professor Marcelo Gleiser. Professor Gleiser is the Appleton Professor of Natural Philosophy and Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Dartmouth College. Author of numerous scientific and popular works on the subject, including The Dancing Universe and The Prophet and the Astronomer, his latest release, A Tear at the Edge of Creation, explores this issue for a general audience. Professor Gleiser, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm wondering if maybe you can tell us a little bit about philosophy of oneness that has been pervasive and the philosophy of science. Sure. So before I explain why it doesn't work, let me explain what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so the essential idea is really very, very old. It's much older than science, really. It goes back to the origins of philosophy. Right from the very beginning of philosophy, about 2,500 years ago, the first question that philosophers asked was, what is the world made of? And the first answer, anyways, was that the world was made of a single substance, and that substance for the first philosopher was water. Now, it doesn't matter why he chose water. Water is an answer that made sense to him. But what's really important is that it was a single primal substance. So this notion that the universe, even though it looks so different, that there is such a huge diversity amongst all things, but still, if you look deep down, really everything is connected and comes from a single source. It's very old indeed. And it's moved from this first philosopher who was Thales, into other philosophers, and slowly in the Renaissance, it percolated into science. So patriarchs like Galileo and Kepler and Newton, all of them believed in this oneness behind everything that is. And in fact, Newton, for example, who is known for all his laws of motion and gravity, he really believed that the universe was the creation of a very intelligent mathematician God. So for him, to understand nature was to understand the mind of God. And you move into modern times, and you look at Einstein, for example. Einstein spent the last 20 years of his life trying to construct a unified theory that combined two of the most important forces that we have, which is gravity and electromagnetism. And of course, it didn't work. And it's modern air, this notion that there is such a thing, a unified theory behind all there is, is very much alive. And the modern air of this idea is what we call superstrings, 
who have the nickname of theories of everything. So let me explain that for the physicists, the theory of everything doesn't mean that he's going to be able to predict who is going to win the Super Bowl or uh, how many kids you're going to have or things like that. But it's really a theory that predicts how the most fundamental building blocks of matter interact. And my point in this book is, well, that is a beautiful idea, and it definitely has its roots in monotheistic thought. I even call it monotheistic science. But let's look at the evidence for it. And that's where things start to get a little more interesting. Hmm. So again, it's this idea that a unification theory can exist. Exactly. It's the notion that we can, through mathematics and through physics, actually understand what I call nature's hidden code. You know, it sounds like some kind of esoteric, cabalistic idea that behind the diversity of all there is, there really is some sort of perfectly symmetric order that is just hiding, but that if we do understand it, then we're going to be peering at nature as at its deepest possible structure. And I have to say that I did my PhD in superstring theory, and I wrote about 40 papers on the topic and related issues. So I'm not an outsider to the issue, but... As time went by, I started to look a little more critically up to this thing, and I realized that, well, first of all, is there any empirical evidence whatsoever to say that there is such a thing as a unified theory behind all there is? And the, the fact is that, well, there isn't. Now, you mentioned before that there are laws of nature and that the pursuit in science, especially in physics, is to uncover those laws because they have such tremendous explanatory power. And that is absolutely true. I mean, there are laws of nature, and it is the goal of science, especially of physics, to understand what these laws are. But theories of everything are saying something a little different. They're saying that there is a fundamental law and that everything springs out from there. And so there are all sorts of hidden assumptions here. And to me, the most important of these assumptions is the following, is that we can actually know all there is to know. And we look at how science is constructed over the last few hundred years, and we realize that science is more like a quilt. It's more like things that we discover here and there because we have tools that are powerful enough to uncover all these new things. And so what we know of the world, what we know of nature, is very, very much dependent on how we measure things. So... If we cannot measure everything, and our instruments are never, ever going to be powerful enough to measure all there is to measure, then, even though you may think you have a final theory, you'll never be able to prove that that theory is final, because there can always be something else out there in the shadows, so to speak, which is beyond the reach of your instruments, and that thing can just surprise you and prove that your theory is not complete yet. So the notion of a final theory or a theory of everything really doesn't make much sense. Maybe what uh, philosophers would call the difference between an ontological and an epistemological knowing, that whether or not you can know whether such a theory exists, even if it does exist or not. That's exactly right. You're right on. So even if nature does have this unification behind it all, we humans, because of the way we create information about the world through our scientific instruments and theories, we are very much limited in what we can know. And so even if this unification is out there, we're only going to catch glimpses of it. So all possible unifications that we may reach 
on the way are going to be partial unifications. And to me, that's fine. One of the things that I say in my book, you know, don't despair. This is not such bad news after all, because it really tells you something about science, which I think a lot of people should understand, which is science is not godlike. Science is human-like. It's something that we create to make sense of the world in which we live, and hence, it doesn't have all the answers. And so this is a very good example of what's something that science cannot come to understand. Hmm. It kind of rankles a bit of fundamental tenet of science, sort of this aim at reductionism, collapse more and more data into one unified theory. How do we actually approach how we do science, if not in this reductionist manner? Right. That's a very, very good question. And reductionism, which essentially says that, you know, if you have a complicated system, let's look at its pieces and its little parts and understand how they work and then maybe integrate the whole thing to understand how the total thing works. It's been wonderful, right? I mean, it's been incredibly successful in the history of science and it has done so much for, for us and it continues to do that. You know, the fact is that I like to say that here we are, you know, talking about all these lofty topics and stuff, but the reality is that 95% of the scientists, they're working on their corners of knowledge, and they really can't care less about is there unification or not. So in that sense, reductionism works incredibly well, but it has its limitations. So, for example, the fact that we understand how atoms work, simple atoms work. So we have a beautiful theory to explain how the hydrogen atom works, which is the simplest chemical element that exists. Now, can I use that theory to understand how uranium works, which is a complicated atom? And the answer is no, because uranium atoms are so complex that that simple theory that we have just doesn't work. So it's not obvious that knowing the little parts, we can go and understand the complex behavior of things. So if you go from atoms to molecules and then from molecules to living things, then the mass becomes even more complicated and reductionism really does not work. So that doesn't mean that science is stuck. There are other ways of doing this and there is a whole new branch of science which is called complexity theory and nonlinear dynamics and a bunch of other beautiful names that actually try to understand systems without breaking them into little parts. And that's really one of the ways in which science is going to advance and has been advancing the last few decades. You know, reductionism, it's wonderful, but it has its limits. And for example, let me give a very, very clear example of this, which is the human brain. So you look at the human brain, and here we are, everything that we do and think, all these conversations that we're having now are coming from our brain. Now, what is the brain? And you say, well, you know, the brain is about 300 billion neurons. And you say, okay, let's then study a neuron, a single neuron, and see if by studying the neuron, we can understand how the brain works. And there's just no way that's going to work. I mean, you will understand the neuron and how it works, but then you put together a hundred neurons, a thousand neurons, and they start to interact in ways that you cannot possibly understand by understanding how a single neuron works. And so there are some systems where you have many parts that interact with themselves at the same time that generate such complex behaviors that you have to use different tools to obtain answers, and reductionism just cannot describe it. In physics, the idea of superstring theory is trying to represent this theory of everything. What is its problems, its failings in, in this regard? Well, it's no wonder that my colleague and friend Brian Green called a book about string theory, The Elegant Universe, because it is a beautiful idea. 
It's a very mathematical idea. It's very appealing. It has the notion that the world is indeed some kind of geometric, platonic construction that we, with our human minds, can comprehend in its totality. So it's very seductive, right? It's a very seductive idea. And what superstrings want to do, and that's sort of like a big, big topic, but essentially what they're trying to do is reconcile two of the main theories of physics of the 20th century. So in one hand, we have Einstein's theory of relativity that describes big things like stars and black holes in the universe. And then on the other hand, you have quantum mechanics, which is the physics that describes little things like atoms and protons inside the atomic nucleus and even elementary particles like protons alone interacting with electrons, etc. And why do you want to integrate these two? Well, because according to the Big Bang model of cosmology, the universe is expanding. So if you play this movie backwards and you start going backwards in time, the universe is shrinking. Well, there's going to be a moment in time way in the past at about 14 billion years ago when the universe is shrunk so much that you have to use the physics of the very small, the quantum physics of atoms to explain the behavior of the universe as a whole. So you have to find a way of combining the physics of the very small with the physics of the very large. So it's this kind of difficult marriage between these two theories that superstrings tries to deal with. Now, they're not the only game in town, but the difference is that superstrings not just try to reconcile these two theories, but they also try to bring together all forces of nature into the same single description. And there are four of them. We know of gravity and electromagnetism. And the other two are called the strong and weak nuclear forces. They only happen inside the atomic nucleus. But then the notion is then that these four forces can be manifest as a single force that is related to how these hypothetical strings vibrate in a nine-dimensional space. So it's a beautiful idea, but it's necessarily incomplete, right? So as I mentioned before, even if superstrings succeed, and I always like to say that I'm not shooting superstrings down. They have great respect for everybody who's doing superstring theories. There are some other books that have been saying that it's complete nonsense. I don't know if it's nonsense or not. What I do disagree is when they say that that is a theory of everything, that that will be a final theory when you unify these four forces with quantum mechanics and general relativity, because that we can never know. There can always be a fifth force or something completely unexpected lurking behind our ignorance. In, in your book, you also talk about the uniqueness of life, whereas a lot of scientists would like to propose at least that life would be very abundant in the universe. Right. So the ongoing theme in my book, and that's why it starts with super strings and that kind of physics, and it ends with biology and, and life here on Earth and in the universe. That's why I say from Big Bang to ET. It's because the ongoing argument is the following, is that instead of looking for perfection, which is what strings do, you should be really focusing on imperfections, on asymmetries, because it turns out that nature creates through imbalance, through these asymmetries. So the origin of time itself, the origin of matter, and definitely the origin of life really depend on imperfections, on asymmetries in the balances of matter and of molecules. So when you look at life here on Earth, then Earth exists 
has existed for about 4.5 billion years, a little bit more than that. Life has existed for about 3.5 billion years. Of these 3.5 billion years, only about 500 million, so half a billion years, is complex life. For most of the history of Earth, life here was incredibly simple. And if you look how life evolved from simple to complex, and now we know that the history of life and the history of Earth are very deeply related, you realize that it's a story that depends on a series of random accidents, major cataclysms, asteroid collisions that destroyed, at some point, 95% of life on Earth, changed the conditions of the planet, then another one 65 million years ago that destroyed 45% of life on, on the planet, plus all the dinosaurs. And so if I could play God, you know, and I could rerun the history of Earth, but tweaking here and there a couple of accidents, life would have followed a completely different course. And so that tells you that the fact that there is life here that life on planet Earth is complex, and that more than complex, that life on planet Earth is intelligent. And by intelligence here, I mean things that can create technology, right? Because you can argue dolphins and dogs are intelligent. So I'm not going to go there. But I mean like things that can create tools and technologies. It's really a, re a remarkable thing. You look at our solar system, and Mars is a wonderful place. Venus is a wonderful place. But they are horrible places for life. They're barren worlds. At most, you may find something quite simple in the Martian underground. Who knows? And same with other potential spots here in our solar system. And as you move outwards to other solar systems and you look at planets going around other stars, odds are that what you're going to find there is going to be very simple as well. Because... Life does not have a hidden plan to become complicated. The only hidden plan that life has is to adapt to its environment. And so our history here is a very unique history. I always joke that when I tell people that, look, what I'm telling here is that there is no perfection, that there is imperfection, that is really a series of random accidents. People say, oh, my God, this is so depressing. You know, basically you're saying that we are just nothing, that life is meaningless, you know, I'm going to go slit my throat. I'm like, no, 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 stop. You know, that's exactly not what I'm saying. That's what people think I'm saying, or people that think in terms of accidents as being a horrible thing are saying. But what I'm saying is that we have to shift completely our perspective and understand that precisely because we are the result of a series of accidents, precisely because life is so rare, and certainly intelligent life is extremely rare in the universe, we are very, very special indeed. And our planet, Earth, is a miraculous place. And so, at the end, I come up and say, we humans that have been so humiliated in the history of science because we began by being the center, by being created by God, and then the more that we understood about the universe, the less important we became. And here I'm saying, no, no, actually, modern science is telling us that we're very, very important, that we are extremely rare, and that we have a very important goal ahead of us, which is to be the guardians of life at all costs. And I actually created my own name for this to contrast with tropocentric ideas, right? Anthropocentric ideas were the ones that in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, people say, well, Earth is the center. We are created by God. We are the, the best, the best of the best. And of course, that was abandoned. And I'm saying this is the dawn of a new era 
which I call the human-centric era, that, yes, we are actually very important, and we should develop a new morality in which we are at the center of things, not because we live in the center of the universe or because we were created by some supernatural force, but because we are rare and we are intelligent. We are sort of how the universe thinks about itself, and because of that, we have a very important and, I hope, unifying Here I go back to unification, but the unification of humanity, you know, towards the goal of self-preservation. It really is a very fascinating idea. We are running slightly out of time, though, but I'm curious if maybe you just have some final words regarding Terror at the Edge of Creation. I said so many things, but I think the main lesson that I want people to understand is that science does not have all the answers, and it will never have all the answers, but that does not make it less interesting or less compelling to study. You know, I always say that nature is much smarter than we are, and we are always playing a catch-up game. And so there are all sorts of mysteries to understand out there. For example, how did life appear? How did a bunch of chemicals decided to get together and start to reproduce and metabolize energy? So what's the origin of life? Did it happen the same way here as it could happen in other places in the universe? So there are all sorts of beautiful fundamental questions out there that do not depend on a theory of everything that will keep us busy for a very, very long time. As long as we learn from this lesson that I'm trying to teach in the book, which is we are it and we have a very important role preserving what we are and where we are. Well, the new book is called A Tear at the Edge of Creation, and Professor Gleiser, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, it's my pleasure. And you were just listening to Marcelo Gleiser discussing A Tear at the Edge of Creation. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. It's on the Merry Castorchard Brow Mickey Mouse has grown up a cow Now the workers have struck for fame Cause Lennon's on sale again See the mice in their million hordes From Ibiza to the Norfolk broads Blue Britannia is out of bounds To my mother, my dog and clown but the film is a sad thing for Cause I wrote it ten times or more It's about to be writ again As I ask you to focus on Sailors fighting in the dance hall Oh man, look at those cavemen go It's a freaky show Take a look at the It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic elegant 
or gloriously messy. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're elegant or gloriously messy and a little reason why. Professor Gleiser, are you ready to play the game? I'll try. All right. <laughs> Here we go. Person number one, it's the late astronomer Carl Sagan. Oh, he's elegant. He was a wonderful thinker. And in fact, you know, if you look in the book, I'm dedicating this book to the memory of Carl Sagan. So he's high up there. All right. Person number two is the former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin. Gloriously messy. I think she's a disaster. And I just hope that more people see that before it's too late. (laughs) Uh, Number three is the evolutionary biologist, Richard Dawkins. That's a tough one. I would say that he's elegant. Uh, even though I don't quite agree with everything he says at all. In fact, in the book, I criticize his very extremist ways of thinking about religion, you know. But he is a great scientist. He's a very eloquent spokesman for science, so I have to call him elegant. Person number four, elegant or gloriously messy, it's the talk show host Jerry Springer. Okay, gloriously messy, disastrous, very aggressive, very kind of uh, prejudiced and not good. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. And finally, number five, it's the president of the United States, Barack Obama. Oh, he's elegance personified. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Professor Gleiser, I want to thank you very much for sticking around, playing our game, and of course, talking about your new book, A Tear at the Edge of Creation. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>